welcome to Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute, where we offer a skeptical take on US foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Emma Ashford, a research fellow in foreign policy at the Cato Institute. And I'm Trevor Thrall, a senior fellow here at Cato. Today's topic is Yemen. I'd love to say that this is a particularly newsworthy topic, but sadly, during the three years that the war in Yemen has been going, it has received almost no media attention here in the US. This is despite terrible humanitarian costs, the involvement of US forces uh, in the air and on the ground, um, and the questionable actions of very close US allies in that war. So joining us to discuss Yemen today is Kate Kaiser, who's the policy director of Win Without War, an organization aimed at establishing and advancing a progressive US national security strategy. Prior to her current role, she was Director of Policy and Advocacy at the Yemen Peace Project, which makes her uniquely qualified to shed some light on this ongoing crisis for us. Kate, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So as usual, we're going to start uh, not with Yemen, but with some of our news bits. And it's been another busy week in foreign policy. Um, But I think we have to start on the domestic front. So Robert Mueller Uh, the special prosecutor, this week indicted a number of Russians associated with something known as the Internet Research Agency for spreading Russian propaganda and fake news during the election. So this seems to be a new tactic in foreign policy, the, the use of memes and propaganda and Facebook to try and influence our elections. What do we think? I mean... I think it's just the digital age has really expanded these actors' reach. This is not necessarily a new tactic used by the Russians, but suddenly they have an easy global reach in all time zones, seemingly. Yeah, the Russia may not be a superpower anymore, but when it comes to social media, they're definitely a great power. They're, <laughs> they're really good at, at trolling. The more the more I read, the more fascinating this story gets. I mean, it's disturbing, of course, but the lengths they've gone to to develop uh, new digital tools for faking photographs, faking videos, faking people's voices. Uh, we're getting to a point pretty soon where it's going to be really hard to know what's real and what's fake. And that's really concerning for national security, especially when you have a president who denies that this has even gone on or that it's even a threat. So are you actually saying that that picture of Hillary arm wrestling with Jesus wasn't real? I'm, the book is still up. We're still waiting to hear on that. <laughs> But, but you know, to, to be serious for just a second, the, the Mueller indictment I think is, is important because, for foreign policy uh, because I think it, it really does make it very difficult for the Trump administration to continue denying Russian interference and, and it makes it much harder for them to um, sort of drag their feet moving forward to do things to confront whatever you call this new Russian threat. Mm -hmm. I think one of the questions that sort of this raises again for me is that that we talk a lot about you know, collusion and the special prosecutor and interference and all this stuff. But there's a there's a real concrete difference there between the special prosecutor could at some point find that there was collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russians, but that's not been proven or or, suge- or particularly suggested yet. But what they are finding is just truckloads of evidence that the Russians actually did try and swing the election or at least meddle in it to the point where a President Hillary Clinton would have been weakened by it. So you're yeah. right, foreign policy problem. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And they've achieved their end. I mean, if anything, it's just further the polarization that we have politically. And I think that's really the long-term goal. It's bigger than a single president or administration. 
Yeah, there was a great article by Anne Applebaum in the uh, the Washington Post today, and I don't normally cite her approvingly, but her argument was basically that uh, we don't need the Russians to do this. We can also do it to ourselves. And I think that's perhaps something to bear in mind going forward. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. So let's move on to our second news story of the week, um, which is actually a bunch of stories. And it seems like it's the season for corrupt politicians all around the world. South Africa's Jacob Zuma, uh, the president, was forced out over corruption charges. Benjamin Netanyahu in Israel is now facing potential indictment, trial, maybe even prison time on corruption charges. Um, and the latter in particular could have some big implications for Middle East policy. Yeah, I mean, it... Both of these scandals, I think, are showing that they've been brewing for a while, but typically, I think in this day and age, especially with Trump in the White House, corruption is happening with impunity. Um, and so it's it's great to see that there's potentially being actions taken um, to remedy those situations. I mean, in the case of Netanyahu, obviously his wife was already indicted for similar charges, um, and it was kind of only a matter of time until he was under the microscope, but it's really unclear if he would actually end up going to prison. There have been past prime ministers in Israel who have, um, but he kind of seems to survive it all. Um, but of course, Zuma was the same way. So yeah, who knows? I, the thing I wonder about, though, is, is you know, whether it matters bigger picture. One person can be pivotal depending on the moment, I guess. But uh, on the other hand, there are many cases where it's the party, not the person that matters most. And in the case of Israel, I'm I'm skeptical that it matters whether Netanyahu's the person or the next guy up is the person. I, I don't see peace being easy to get between Israel and Palestinians anytime soon, regardless. So... Yeah, that's for sure. No, I really like the, the point that you made, Kate, that, that this is sort of a broader problem with corruption around the world. So this is the tip of the iceberg. We are seeing a lot of politicians, even in Western countries, democratic systems where 10 years ago, this would have been much more of a scandal. And now we're seeing politicians sort of able to get away with these things. And I was just listening to a story on the radio that blew my mind that Silvio, Silvio Berlusconi is about to win again in Italy. Uh, no. You know, like it's, it's you're right. No, there's no scandal deep enough or shameful enough that you can't come back from it eventually. It's um, you know, I think it's also part of the news cycle, right? It's there's so many stories on these various crises around the world. And so we get anesthetized to these scandals that used to when there was like one source of news would be a huge scandal that would kind of blow up whatever politician's career it was. Yeah. So um, so let's move away from all these sort of domestic political issues um, and just talk for a minute about the Munich Security Conference, which is usually one of the big events on the calendar for, for international security. It just wrapped up last week. Um, this year, it seems to be a little more disorganized. It was characterized by saber rattling by almost every major speaker um, and lots and lots of warnings of impending global doom. Um, are things really as hopeless as they suggested? I don't know. I, I think that personally, I don't think things are as hopeless as they suggest, but it will remain where they think it is if they do not offer a broader vision of what the West is for. And I think that's really what was emblematic about this conference is there was no call to action. There was no um, talk about like what the West is for, or what our policies are leading to. There was just this is all a crisis, but there's no fresh ideas on what to do about these crises. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think, you know, unfortunately, 
the NATO U.S. sort of situation is, you know, dicey enough that it's hard to imagine a vision coming out of that anytime soon. Um, and the this I, I worry a little bit about the self fulfilling prophecy sort of dynamic with the doom and gloom. If if that's how you see the world, you're much more likely to take actions that make it so. And um, I know since the U.S. is the prime mover in most of these things, I don't worry nearly so much about what Europe is thinking as what. Trump is thinking and and that, you know, don't have good feelings about that. I have to wonder how much of the saber-rattling speeches were the result of the fact that there really didn't appear to be any US diplomacy on the ground there. Um, there were some representatives from the Trump administration, but they weren't uh, sort of top-billed speeches. They weren't particularly um, highlighted in the conference. And as far as I'm aware, there wasn't really a big US presence there. And so I think a lot of these countries like the the Iranian president or the, the prime minister of Israel got up and gave these speeches that in previous years, perhaps US diplomats would have persuaded them to be a little more um, restrained in their language. And and this year, there doesn't seem to have been that, that focus. I mean, I think that's what the Trump administration has really unleashed around the world is this idea that you do not have to adhere to certain values. You do not have to have an alternative vision for the world that you can use military force to achieve your ends. And I think, you know, unfortunately, other countries are taking that lead um, because it's a more convenient model. It's less difficult to thread that needle when you're just threatening the use of force rather than sitting down and having difficult conversations. And when you have a State Department that is totally gutted and no, diplomats who are constantly undercut by the White House, I can't help but understand why these countries are where they're at. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Trump, among whatever other things you can say about him, doesn't appear very interested in global leadership. Um, even even global leadership in terms of pursuing U.S. interests, I, I mean, through influencing others, that doesn't seem to be on his agenda very often. So no need for diplomats, no need for, you know, whipping uh, the, the group at the conference. I mean, it's just like, yeah, whatever. I don't, we don't really care. It's America alone more than America first. It's so interesting, too, because, you know, his criticism of the Iraq war for the U.S. acting unilaterally through the use of force in such a way but he is seemingly doing the exact same path that George W. Bush did. Self-awareness is not perhaps his strong suit. So on that note, um, I want to move on to our surprise question of the day, which is is right in line with, with this discussion. Um, and I want to ask you, Kate, what do you think Donald Trump's worst foreign policy decision has been? And then what do you think Donald Trump's best foreign policy decision has been? Uh, it's such a hard question. I mean, at least the best. Um, in terms of the worst, I, I think uh, I'm, you know, a golf watcher. And so I think there's two things. One is the Muslim ban that he brought down within his first weeks in office that just totally sent the wrong message to the world, sent the wrong message to people, the most vulnerable populations around the world, that America is a place that welcomes immigrants, that welcomes people of all backgrounds because that makes us stronger. Um, and the second part, which is related to that, um, is this outsourcing we've seen of U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East to the Gulf. We really have just started backing decisions made by the Saudis and the UAE with little regard for what our interests are in these regions and how those decisions made by, quote unquote, allies actually have counterproductive effects um, to what we're trying to do. And Yemen is obviously a microcosm of this problem, but it's also happening, you know, in places like Lebanon, Um with Qatar and the crisis there and the blockade. So um, those are just but a few, I think. Um, I could probably talk for hours about this. In terms of the best, I mean, 
I, I struggle to find one. I think, um, you know, before, during the campaign, he made a lot of great promises about withdrawing the U.S. from this endless cycle of global war, reigning in um, kind of this military-only strategy to the world. And we've obviously seen the opposite. So I guess the best would be if he had lived up to those promises. <laughs> um, but unfortunately, he hasn't yet. Well, thanks for at least trying to answer, because many of our guests uh, have, have just said, no, he, he hasn't made any decisions that I could live with. Yeah, in office, no. <laughs> okay, well, on that on that note, then, let's move on and talk about our main topic of the day, because I think Yemen has been the situation where it's been awful, it's been awful for a long time, and I don't think the public is even so much anesthetized to it as just we don't know about it, we don't talk about it. So let's start a little by talking about the background. Um, why is Yemen at war? Why are we involved? What's going on there? Sure. So it's a very complicated um, conflict. I mean, this civil war in Yemen started in 2013, 2014, um, and it really stems from the failed transition process that occurred after Yemen's Arab Spring protests, where the majority of the population stood up, asked for human rights, democracy, reforms in the government, and ultimately for the former president, Ali Abdullah Saleh, to step down. And Yemen went through a transition process, but unfortunately, it wasn't as inclusive as it could have been. And so um, a rebel group called the Houthis, who've been fighting against the government over ostensibly economic and political marginalization for over a decade, um, had an alliance with then-ousted former President Saleh to take over the capital city of Sana'a from the transitional president Hadi um, and eventually forced him out of the country and made him flee to Riyadh in 2015. And... At that time, there was an agreement for a future unity government, um, but Saudi Arabia, along with the UAE and other Gulf countries, launched an intervention in March of 2015 to reinstall President Hadi to his post and his government. Um, and so right from the get-go, this was billed as a two- to three-week intervention. It would be an easy military operation to get him back um, into the presidency. And at the time, the Obama administration had just finished negotiating the Iran deal, and they were in this process of trying to figure out ways to reassure its Gulf allies. And so... Um, Former Obama administration officials talk about the fact that essentially they backed this intervention as a means of getting an agreement to support the Iran deal by the Gulf. Um, obviously, now the intervention has lasted over three years. Um, the longer the war has gone on, it's really fractionalized the country and the conflict. Um, but ostensibly, the two sides are the Houthis, as well as forces aligned to former President Saleh, who was actually killed by the Houthis in December um, when he flipped to the Saudi side. And then the Saudis that are backing this president, um, Hadi, forces loyal to him. It's unclear what that really means because there's not actually a lot of security forces still loyal to him um, and several of the Gulf countries who are involved in this intervention. So it's mostly Saudi Arabia, the UAE and Bahrain um, on the international side, the UK, the US, um, Germany and France have all backed the intervention in some degree. It's mostly the US and UK and we're, we've been intimately involved since the beginning. Yeah, and I appreciate you calling out the, the domestic Yemeni politics of this because I think there is a real 
real tendency in the Western media to portray this as this, um, the Houthis are an Iranian-sponsored terror group and, uh, you know, we need to be pushing back against them because they're trying to take over this country that, you know, was apparently was just peaceful for many years. But actually, Yemen has been, it was only one state for about 20 years. Before that, it was two states. It's been fractured so many times. Um, and in addition to all of the actors you laid out, there are also groups in the South that want to secede. There are groups in the East that are rebel groups. There are groups. So, so Yemeni politics is massively complex. Um, but we're sort of seeing it portrayed as this black versus white conflict. Yeah, I think there's a tendency, especially in the media, to go for simplicity. And with a situation like Yemen, if you make it simplistic, you lose a lot of the nuance and detail that's really important to understanding how you can actually get to peace. And so it's certainly been internationalized by the Gulf as well as Iran. Um, but the thing about Iran's influence is, A, it's unclear what level of influence they actually have. They don't have command and control over the Houthis. The Houthis took over Sana'a after Iran told them not to do it. Um, they've also, we've heard that Iran has also, you know, said, like, don't launch these ballistic missiles into Saudi Arabia at times. And so I think it's really important to understand that this rebel group that now controls the capital city largely is operating on its own. The more they are isolated, though, the more they're going to look towards third parties like Iran. And Iran is an opportunistic actor, right? So they're going to take an opportunity to annoy Saudi Arabia on its southern border. But I would argue that they would actively... give up the Yemen card for concessions in Iraq and Syria. Um, But it's a kind of understanding the different regional actors' interests is extremely important to first ending the intervention and resolving the civil war. So I think the other – the aspect that does get talked about in the media – is the humanitarian crisis. And I think we we all know that there is a humanitarian catastrophe. Um, But the question I I hear quite a lot is, why is this such a a bad humanitarian catastrophe? Why why are so many people in Yemen starving? Uh, And I don't think most people in the West, again, have a very clear understanding of the causes of this. Sure. And it's a giant crisis, um, as you mentioned, the largest humanitarian crisis in the world now. Um, Yemen was the poorest Arab country in the Arab world before the war, they imported about 90% of its food um, even prior to the conflict. And so when the intervention started, part of uh, the Saudi-led coalition strategy was to essentially implement a de facto blockade on the country. And so this really consisted of slowing down imports, particularly at the ports that were controlled by the Houthis. Um, On the Red Sea coast, there are two ports, Salif and Hodeidah, that are two of the most vital ports. Um, And I think what a lot of people don't understand is that um, it's not only that the Yemeni people rely on these ports, it's that the fact that the entire population center are actually located near these ports. So even if you're getting in food to the south of the country where the coalition is, that will largely have no impact because it has to travel through multiple war zones to actually get to the people. And so in addition to this blockade, you know, the Houthis have... um, tampered or taxed um, humanitarian shipments, restricted access for humanitarians. Um, But in reaction to a ballistic missile strike um, last November, Saudi Arabia and its alliance actually implemented a full blockade where it didn't allow any type of humanitarian or commercial goods into the country. And so before that blockade last November, to give you a sense of the numbers, there were about 6.8 million people on the brink of famine, meaning they had no idea where their next meal would come from. They were actively going to 
starve if they did not have humanitarian assistance. Now, when that blockade occurred, it was in place fully for about a month period before it was temporarily eased. And the UN saw a 24 percent increase of civilians on the brink of famine. So that number shot up from 6.8 million to 8.4 million in a matter of weeks. Um, And so And then the other aspect of this, in addition to the blockade, is that the UN has also documented a systematic pattern of airstrikes by the Saudi-led coalition targeting vital civilian infrastructure. And that's why we have the outbreak of all of these preventive diseases um, that are now ravaging the country. Uh, Yemen is now home to the largest and fastest growing cholera outbreak ever documented in modern history. There's now a diphtheria outbreak. Um, And this all has to do with the restriction of goods getting into the country, as well as these airstrikes that are now the leading driver of civilian casualties in the conflict. So, you know, dire. Uh, But... This you mentioned before that you know the Saudis went into this thinking it was going to be weeks, not months, certainly not years. The Obama administration may have been willing to sort of you know uh, accommodate the Saudis' interest for Iran deal support, but n- none of that seemingly to me explains why the Saudis still think it's necessary to slog on, nor does it explain to me why the United States, the UK, others would continue to support what has become such an obvious uh, black eye politically, even if you don't care about the people on the ground, which I assume most normal people do. Hopefully. Hopefully. (laughs) I mean, in terms of Saudi Arabia's concerns and why they would slog on, they have been I mean, paranoid is really the only way to see it. They believe that the Houthis are an Iranian proxy. They believe this for a long time. They actually intervened in the previous wars between the Houthis and the Saleh government in 2009. Um, and this was largely because Saleh tried to paint the Houthis as an Iranian proxy at the time. Also important to mention, though, he also tried to paint them as Libyan proxies when Gaddafi was unpopular with the Gulf. So this is really just a talking point he used to get them more concerned about this. And, I, you know, they do have valid border security concerns. There's been incursions over the border. I get that. But an air campaign that seeks to use collective punishment in order to get the population to submit to their will is not the way to go about addressing those concerns, right? Um And for the international community, absolutely. It's a bit absurd that we're still in the place that we are. I mean, Obama did scale back a tiny bit of assistance in reaction to airstrikes that killed massive amounts of civilians, um, over 140 on a a funeral procession. There's been multiple weddings attacked. But unfortunately, whatever small amount that Obama recessed in terms of U.S. support and involvement, Trump has really doubled down on that support now. Um, And in addition to this military support that we always talk about, you know, these countries, the U.K. and U.S. in particular, are giving Saudi Arabia and the UAE protection in the international arena so they can continue this with impunity. And I don't know if that is just this default, we have to support our allies, which is definitely a Washington thing um, because we've been allies for over, you know, five decades at this point and they're a source of stability, which I would argue there no longer are. Um, But I mean, 
there's no good reason at this point. It doesn't serve our interests anymore. It didn't in the first place. Um, we should not be getting involved in other countries' civil wars where we actually don't have vested interests. So um, the time is up, that's for sure. You know, it strikes me as, as the, the interesting question is, you know, if you, like like you or like me, say, oh, we shouldn't be intervening in other countries, this is an indefensible war. But even if you believe in intervention for humanitarian purposes, if you compare what's happening in Yemen to what happened in Syria, it's remarkably similar, except we're on the wrong side. Mm -hmm. In Syria, we saw all these calls for intervention because the Assad regime was using collective punishment on the population to try and keep himself in power. In Yemen, we see the Saudis doing something remarkably similar, bombing schools, bombing hospitals. Um, and we know they're doing it on purpose because we provided them the intelligence of saying, don't bomb these places. And then they actually went ahead and used it to target. So we're kind of on the wrong side of this. And I don't see how you justify this even from a sort of interventionist standpoint. Absolutely. And it's not only that we're on the wrong side, but unlike Syria, we have a lot of leverage in this situation to actually end the intervention, to push the parties to the negotiating table. But that takes political will out of the White House. It also takes diplomats, which don't exist at the State Department currently. And so it's really unfortunate that time and again, not only has both administrations really abdicated that using that leverage for good purposes. Congress has as well. So I want to take a detour while we're talking about the U.S. role here, because um, the things that we've referenced so far, things like uh, targeting and intelligence information, logistical support for the air campaign. Um, all of that is in support of the Saudi campaign against the Houthis. But U.S. policy towards Yemen is more general than that. We also have, you might say, security interests in Yemen that are groups like Al-Qaeda and the Arabian Peninsula. There's apparently a branch of ISIS now that's, that's in this conflict. And so to some extent, we're fighting a two-front war in Yemen. Yeah, I'd actually argue that there are three wars happening in Yemen. Um, so there's the civil war, um, then there's the war against al-Qaeda and now the branch of ISIS um, in Yemen. Um, and then there's this southern secessionist movement that no one really talks about, that the UAE is backing and supporting at this point and has grown in strength and is now openly talking about the fact that they will only settle, settle for an independent South Yemen. And so I think <laughs> U.S., involvement touches all of those, right? And they've all been problematic for Yemen. So if we just want to start with the CT side, we've been conducting drone strikes and special operations raids in Yemen for over a decade at this point, um, totally focused on kinetic activity, not addressing the governance or economic drivers of the reason that Yemenis have joined these groups. Um, and so it's been really unfortunate to see kind of a not only Obama launched more drone strikes in Yemen than Bush did. And now Trump has done the same thing and doubled Obama's drone strikes. And so we're really just creating, and in these operations, we're also killing civilians in the process because we don't have intelligence really on the ground. We're relying on proxy intelligence. It's unclear in Yemen, especially in the, the context of the civil war where everything is so polarized. You don't know if people are just settling scores, how valid it is. Um, and so it's a very dangerous situation and we're actively making the situation worse through our kinetic operations. Um, on the Civil War, 
As we've been talking about, the U.S. has been intimately involved since the beginning. We have been providing mid-air refueling for coalition jets. Um, So essentially, U.S. tankers fly up in the air and essentially act as a gas station in the sky for the coalition so they don't have to land to be refueled and they can continue carpet bombing Yemen. Um, We also provide targeting intelligence. Um, And so what that means is essentially we're providing intelligence for pre-planned strikes for the coalition and advising them on targeting um, and the laws of war, which over the last three years we've seen has not really made a difference as they continue to kill civilians in their airstrikes. Um, That also includes U.S. personnel in this joint command center in Riyadh. And so it's pretty unclear at this point what they do. Congress has even asked what is the role, um, how many airstrikes are we refueling, and the DOD has not been able to provide any of that information. And then we also provide this innocuous label of logistical support. It's very unclear what that means, um, but it's just another aspect of U.S. involvement with the coalition. and then just on the secessionist side, I mean, this is something that has been percolating since the country was united in the 1990. Um, it really came in terms of a formalized movement in 2007 when they created the Southern Haraq movement. It's always been a very disjointed um, movement. They can really only agree the fact that they want independence um, and that they've been marginalized by the North, but they can't really agree on what the state should look like. Um, very, very reluctant. Uh, reliant on external backers. Um, So it was previously a British protectorate, then really became like a Soviet proxy when it was an independent state, and then it was united. So, um, But this is something that the U.S. continually ignores. And I think it ignores it at its own peril because essentially it's just another instance of the U.S. ignoring what actual Yemenis want um, and imposing its own interests. And and I think it, it will create a powder keg in the long run and make the peace process that much more complicated. Well, perhaps that's a good lead into our final question or kind of a two-part question. Um, and so I guess where does where does Yemen go from here? Where, where does this end? Because we just seem to be trapped uh, in a stalemate situation. And then the, the second part of that would be what can the U.S. do to try and get out of this stalemate? Sure. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if there's much we can do with this administration in the White House, but perhaps there are there are avenues that we could take. Sure. I mean, it's been a stalemate for at least over a year. Um, unfortunately, the main warring parties still believe that a military solution is possible to this conflict. The UN has repeatedly stated it's a military road to nowhere. Um, so they're essentially, it's really the war economy that's keeping the incentive structure for war um, in place amongst the warring parties. And so I think there. If that does not change, um, there really will be no peace in sight um, for Yemen, unfortunately. I think the right first step is to end the intervention. And the U.S. has a lot of leverage to do that. Um, And that could look at a border agreement with the Houthis to allow the Saudis to claim victory and exit. Um, But the U.S. needs to use its own political leverage in order to actually make that happen. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting you're saying to allow the Saudis to save face and say they won and say they got something out of it. If you go back to that 2009-2010 intervention... They just withdrew and claimed victory. It's mm-hmm. it's really impressive. They they actually announced it on TV in Saudi Arabia. They heralded it as a great victory. If you look at what happened on the ground, they just they went in, they they bombed a bunch of stuff. They lost about a thousand, twelve hundred guys, and then they just withdrew. 
and, yeah. and that was it. And so I don't even think they necessarily need to be able to save face that much in order to end this. But pressure is, is definitely missing. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, if we take the traditional view that Saudi Arabia is our ally, if they are our ally, we should be in a position to have a frank conversation that this intervention is no longer in their interest from a security perspective, from an economic perspective. It's estimated it costs $66 million per day for them to wage this campaign. They're undergoing extreme austerity measures at home, taxing their own people, upending the social compact they've had for decades. And so it's a real risk for them to be so overextended. And it's really a matter of just having a conversation. In 2009, it ended in a negotiated ceasefire, right? And they just withdrew and no one was any the wiser. Um, but unfortunately, it's a matter of the U.S. and the U.K. actually taking tangible steps to use their leverage, whether just having the conversation or Congress pushing the White House to have the conversation. Um, and I think we'll see movement there. But unfortunately, Trump on his own has shown no resolve to do so. And I'm, <clears throat> I'm afraid that from a sort of Middle Eastern strategy standpoint, such as you can argue the administration has one. I think, unfortunately, my view right now is that they see Saudi Arabia as our proxy against Iran. And so keeping Iran like tied down in, in Yemen as if that's a thing, um, I, I don't see Trump having an incentive in his own mind to stop them. I mean, I, I don't think he's moved enough by the humanitarian tragedy. I mean, I, that seems clear. It hasn't, not, hasn't moved anyone yet for s several years. But I, I just think they are so anti-Iran right now that, that any pressure on Saudi Arabia is seen as taking away you know, I mean, as dangerous because of the, the bigger game afoot in the Middle East. And so it's kind of keeping things trapped. One of the more frustrating things from the last few years has been seeing Yemen lumped into sentences along with Syria and Iraq when we're talking about Iran. And, you know, as you pointed out earlier, the, there is a real tangible difference between the Houthis as a somewhat tied to Iran, receiving some supplies, but they're not really a proxy group for Iran. There's a huge difference between that and Hezbollah inside Syria or Iranian forces, Quds Force, actually on the ground inside Syria or Iraq. And yet, um, you know, throughout the last couple of years, what we've seen is sentences in news reports and op-eds which say, you know, pushing back against Iranian influence in Syria, Iraq and Yemen. And so it's it's really created this this image. Yeah, and I I hate to say it, but it's straight out of the APAC talking points, right? Is lumping in these countries into this our only policy can be confronting Iran, whatever that means, because they haven't actually articulated steps to do that. Um, but Yemen is a very very unique context, and so this idea that you can confront Iran in Yemen is a totally foolish policy because you talk to any Yemenis on the ground and they say, "Where are the Iranians? There would be dead Iranians here, wouldn't there? Where are?" they? Um, and, and unfortunately, if the U.S. escalating, getting fully, deeply involved in this quagmire of a civil war would actually play into Iran's hands, right? They want the U.S. bogged down in these regional conflicts. It's to their benefit. And so it would, it would be totally counterproductive to what ostensibly we're trying to do or the Trump administration is trying to do. Well, and then on top of all this, you wave the magic salt shaker of terrorism over Yemen, and you have five or six people who are theoretically 
aligned with al-Qaeda or something like that. And okay, there was a attempt at an attack on the U.S. 10 years ago by these jokers. But like Yemen's one of the poorest countries in the world. It's not even a threat to Saudi Arabia, much less a threat to the United States. But you mentioned the magic word of terrorism and you've got another reason why we're never going to let up. I mean, it just, it's almost, and if it's not just Yemen, it's Libya, it's Syria, it's Afghanistan, it's Iraq. It's anywhere that ISIS blinks now. We seem to be trapped and unable to think our way through to clear strategies. And, you know, oh, it's, it, it, yeah. The, the worst part of that, though, is even, even playing devil's advocate, even saying, oh, you know, well, we should, we should be bombing the heck out of ISIS or al-Qaeda inside Yemen the way we have been for the last decade. Even if you believe that, this conflict is counterproductive mm -hmm. because it is, it is preventing us from doing that effectively and it's actually helping to strengthen these groups on the ground because they can seize more territory while everybody else in Yemen is distracted by this fight. Yeah, and our intelligence community has unequivocally said that the main benefactor of this war is al-Qaeda and associated groups. And the other thing to point out, which is why Yemen is so complicated, but it's really important to dig into the details, is that Due to the alliances on the ground and the lack of backing for this internationally legitimate government, um, al-Qaeda has essentially become a de facto ally to the coalition on the ground. And so the U.S. in some way is actively aiding and abetting al-Qaeda in this war. But then we're also bombing members of the group or that are reportedly of the group who we then find out later are contracted and paid by the government to fight against the Houthis. And so just from a – even if your only concern is counterterrorism, you need to be looking at that and say, why are we involved in this civil war? This seems so idiotic. Yeah. So well, I guess there's no answer to that one. But I, I did want to just quickly follow up before we finish on something you said, which is if Congress can pressure the White House. Um, you know, you work a lot on advocacy issues as well. What do you think the potential is for action in Congress on this? So I think there's been a growing um, recognition in Congress that this war is not in the U.S. interest. And even on both sides of the aisle, looking at ways that we can either condition to support to Saudi Arabia or just withdraw it completely. And so um, there's an exciting new initiative. Um, it's called the Yemen War Powers Resolution. It was introduced by Senator Sanders of Vermont and Senator Mike Lee of Utah, along with Senators Rand Paul and Murphy, um, who've been talking about Yemen for a long time, that would force a withdrawal um, of U.S. military support to the Saudi-led coalition. Um, now, there's a carve-out, um, so it does not affect any operations related to the 2001 AUMF. Obviously, I would love to see that included as well. But to be more pragmatic and kind of address the first issue of the civil war and our involve, unauthorized involvement there, um, it's going to be a unique opportunity in March because it invokes the War Powers Resolution of 1973, which was designed for um, U.S. conflicts like this. It is guaranteed a vote on the Senate floor. And so it would essentially be the best opportunity for Congress to send this political signal not only to the Saudis as well as the Trump administration that enough is enough. This intervention has not worked for over a year at least. The increased support that the Trump administration said would make things better has not done anything. Um, and the only way to actually end the intervention and also then focus on ending the civil war through negotiations is to push the parties to the conflict to peace. President Hadi has been using the UN Resolution 2216 that was passed in 2015 as a precondition to even negotiating. And it's super unrealistic for a variety of reasons, but essentially it requires the rebels to lay down their arms and withdraw before they even talk. And no, if you're any... <laughs> 
analyst of war, that's never going to happen, um, especially when they control the majority of the population. And so I think it's it's ideally supposed to be a wake-up call for the administration, that you can't just continue down this military-only course to nowhere, that you actually need to put diplomatic um, leverage to use and push the Saudis to push their own proxy and President Hadi to end this conflict. Well, fingers crossed. It's certainly nice to see Congress actually trying to reassert their war powers for a change. It could be a good first step. You know, we're seeing these expanding wars all over the region. So hopefully this will be a good precedent. Hopefully. Well, that's all we have time for today. Um, But thank you, Kate, for joining us. It's been great. Um, And thanks to everybody at home for listening. To continue the conversation, you can find us on Twitter using the hashtag FPPowerProblems. And as always, thanks to our producer, Jeff Geld. Uh, If you like this episode, say something nice about us on iTunes or Google Play.